Hey, friends, it is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Thanks for joining us. Today, a conversation with one of the world's best-known astronomers, Robert Kirshner of Harvard University. Bob is an expert on supernovae, those spectacular exploding stars that, when they blow up, can actually outshine an entire galaxy for a time. Bob took up that specialty sort of by chance, but his timing was impeccable. In the next two decades, the field itself would explode. Some historically huge supernovae would appear in the skies. New technology would come along that made them easier to find. And astronomers were beginning to realize that those distant beacons had something really important to tell us about the past, present, and future of the whole universe. And what supernovae eventually did tell us was even bigger news than anybody had expected that the cosmos is expanding at faster and faster rates, pushed along by some mysterious stuff that we don't understand, but we have a name for it. It is dark energy. When dark energy was discovered in the late 1990s, it was almost certainly the biggest finding in cosmology in the last 20 years, and Bob Kirshner was a part of it. Well, today he's going to talk about the discovery and what it might mean for the future of our universe, but first a little background on his career. We're going to go back to a time before he was a supernovaist, or whatever the term is, when he was merely a super novice, just coming out of college in the early 1970s. I ended up graduating in astronomy and going to graduate school at Caltech. Once you're there, they treat you like you're a professor. It's sort of the first day you're there. and You know, here, analyze this. (laughs) I remember I had no idea. I didn't even know what the things were that I had been handed, which were (laughs) photographic plates with spectra on them. I was supposed to measure them, and I didn't know where the measuring engine was or, you know, how to do it. But it's a kind of sink or swim sort of place, and uh, they take you to the beach, you understand. Then you sink or you swim. So you figured it out. I figured it out, yeah. And one of the things that we did was to go to Palomar. And, of course, everybody knew about the 200-inch telescope and what a great thing it was. So it was very exciting Mm -hmm. for me to actually go. And you go through the door that says, authorized personnel only. You know, that's kind of a thrill. And it is a great building and a great piece of engineering and all of that. My job was uh, to help Bev Oak, my thesis advisor, with his observations. And the first thing was to grind up a lot of dry ice. I mean, many pounds of dry ice, which was used to cool the photomultiplier tubes, these light detectors. This was before there were solid-state devices that you could use. There was this sort of in-between world where the light would strike a photocathode and electrons would be accelerated and measured somehow or imaged somehow. And it had to be really cold? Uh, it had to be kept cold because some of these photomultipliers were worked out at uh, infrared wavelengths, some of them. And uh, if you don't keep them cold, you get a lot of uh, emission. It means the electrons are just barely bound onto the metal. And at room temperature, some of them would be boiling off. So if you cooled it, that was good. Anyway, this is like watering the elephant. You had buckets <laughs> of this dry ice and you climb up into the telescope and, you know, tamp this stuff into a kind of a freezer that was around the tubes. It was interesting because it was the real thing. And of course, it was incredibly boring at the same time. 
These were in the in the heroic age when people actually rode on the telescope in the telescope and sat there for hours. Yeah, on end. sat there for hours and hours. And if it, and since I didn't know how to do anything, I literally just sat there. You know, sit quietly in the bottom of the te- in the bottom of the cage. But then there was a moment, you know, when uh, my advisor said, well, now take a look in here and, um, you know, you'll see the galaxy and I'm going to move it over there and put it in the entrance to the instrument. And, uh, you know, you don't like to admit it when you can't see the galaxy. (laughs) You kind of move your eye around until you finally are getting the light into the pupil. Those are lost arts because nobody sits outside anymore. You don't acquire the object with your eye. There's a TV camera. Uh, You may not even be at the observatory. You can operate telescopes remotely uh, over the net. There might be somebody there to make, you know, open and close the dome and tell you if something's leaking, but, or, you know, kick something if it doesn't work. But that time of being physically there, which uh, we regarded as sort of made, you know, that made us like cowboys or heroes or poets or something. Mm Uh, really, it was a terrible waste of time in a lot of ways because you're in the dark, fumbling around. It's cold. It's windy. Um, you, you know, it's harder to work efficiently under conditions like that. What was doing astronomy? It, as you say, the heroic age was ending where people actually sat, you know, mounted on big telescopes and searched for things with their eyes and said, ah, there's something. Instead, it was analyzing data, right? Right, right. And, and uh, the whole idea is to use the telescope to gather the data. Maybe you're taking an image, so you want to make a photograph. Or maybe you're taking a spectrum, so you want to put the light into the slit of the spectrograph. Actually going to the telescope is a pretty small fraction of the time, really. The, most of the time was analyzing these uh, data to try to understand something. And I had done a project as an undergraduate on the Crab Nebula. Sounded like a good thing. Supernova remnant seen in 1054 has a spinning neutron star, which was discovered in 1968, so, you know, while I was an undergraduate. So when I got to Caltech, they they asked me, you know, what would you like to work on? I said, well, I don't know. I said I did a project on the Crab Nebula as an undergraduate, and I liked that. And so they gave me data on supernovae and supernova remnants. And Look at me now. I'm still doing the same thing. You just answered my next question, because I know you're renowned as a supernova expert. And I was curious to know how that became your specialty. Well, sheer good fortune, really. I mean, I had started on this, so that was 1970, and I was trying to analyze some of these data, and some of them from this device that Bevo could build that needed the dry ice, and others that were photographic plates that other people at Caltech had taken. And I I really worked on it. I thought, well, maybe I can figure out, uh, these are exploding stars. Maybe I could figure out how much mass there is and how fast it's going and how it's distributed. And I remember going to a meeting in Tucson at uh, Kitt Peak National Observatory. And I had this analysis that I had done of the spectra of supernovae. Uh, I remember... Uh, Rudolf Minkowski, a great figure in the history of astronomy. Yeah. An old man, you know, looking at me, smoking his pipe. And so I was talking for about five minutes, and then he said, We know all this. <laughs> I thought, Okay, I'll just finish my talk as fast as I can. But uh, the point is not so much that 
it was slightly humiliating, but that people took you seriously. At Caltech, they assumed you were going to be doing forefront work soon. Like, now would be good. And I was very fortunate. 1972, there was the brightest supernova since 1937. So that was good. And they had just built a new telescope at Palomar, the 60-inch telescope. Now it's one and a half meters, as we say. But uh, there was the brightest supernova since 1937. So my advisor said, well, why don't you go up there and measure it every night? So I did. And we had this wonderful set of data, which was on the brightest supernova, you know, in a couple of decades. We, the advance of the instruments was quite significant. And so this was a very fine set of data that I had for my thesis that uh, kind of got me launched uh, on that direction. Give us some uh, shock and awe facts on supernovae. I mean, people know they're exploding stars, but... Right. Well, wow us. well I'll tell you, it, it is really surprising. Uh, a star lasts a long time. A star like the sun generates its energy by nuclear fusion, and it's a tremendous, powerful source for maybe 10 billion years. A star like the sun for 10 billion years. But a supernova emits a flash of energy that's as much as the sun will emit in its whole lifetime in about a second. It's a tremendous burst of energy for the massive stars that's probably mostly in the form of neutrinos, which are massless, chargeless, one might say tasteless particles that uh, are emitted from the core, and have some interaction with the material and help it uh, uh, get accelerated outward. The stuff is coming toward you at uh, a tenth of the speed of light, so the surface of the star is expanding. The supernovae that um, we've been using to measure the size of the universe are about four billion times brighter than a single star like the sun, but only for a month, you know, only for a month. The interesting thing, one of interesting thing, is that they create the heavy elements. So the thermonuclear uh, supernovae, the ones that have an explosion, a nuclear explosion, like a bomb, only much, much more, create heavy elements out of light ones. It's fusion. They turn carbon and oxygen all the way up to iron. So we see this in the remnants of supernovae, that inside they have hot iron. And we see that in the optical spectra when we spread the light out into a rainbow early on. And in the remnants of old uh, supernovae, you can see that this, is really, this story is really right. And you should be interested in this because, uh, you know, you've got iron in your blood. Mm, my hemoglobin. You're a hemoglobin. You've got calcium in your bones. You're breathing oxygen. And it might have occurred to you every once in a while, where did those atoms come from? And, you know, most people say, well, it's just from the earth. But, of course, the atoms in the earth came from somewhere else. Where they came from, we think, is from exploding stars that erupted before the sun was formed. And then those heavy elements became some of the stuff that's in the gas between the stars. And when the next generation of stars formed, the sun's generation, we inherited the uh, material from those earlier generations. We really are star material. Just uh, one or two more questions about supernovae, though. What makes them explode? Well, there are two kinds. And one is powered by nuclear fusion, so it's like a bomb where the star burns all its fuel in a few seconds. The other is powered by gravity, where the more massive ones collapse to become a neutron star, 
in um, the very center of the star. It takes only a fraction of a second to smash down to the density of an atomic nucleus. Neutrinos carry out this tremendous blast of energy that is comparable to the energy that the sun puts out in its whole lifetime. So there are two kinds. There's the kind that's powered by nuclear fusion. It's kind of a bomb. And the other kind that's powered by gravity that takes place in massive stars where uh, the center of the star collapses and then bounces in a way that bursts off the uh, rest of the star. Now, the curious thing is these are of roughly comparable brightness. The uh, thermonuclear ones are a little brighter, but, you know, they're kind of comparable. And they're just totally different physical mechanisms. So it took a while for people to sort out that there were really two kinds. And the first person to find the second kind was Rudolf Minkowski. The same the Rudolf same guy. Minkowski. That's the same Rudolf. <laughs> we already know that. Yeah, we know this. <laughs> we already know this. So uh, the two types you just described, do they correspond to type one and type two? Yes. Okay. See how clever we were in naming <laughs> them. So Minkowski, you know, there was one kind of supernova, which Fritz Zwicky, whom... I had encountered at Caltech. Oh, had you? He yes. was a notorious character. Yes. So Was he as difficult as people say? Well, my relationship with him was pretty good. It turns out that at this point, right toward the end of his life, he was working hard on his catalogs of galaxies. And so he was down in the basement of Robinson Lab at uh, Caltech early in the morning. He wore an eye patch because he was using a uh, kind of eyepiece where he was using one eye at a time and measuring where the different things were and noting all that down. And he's a big old guy down there wearing an eye patch, looked like a pirate, spoke with this uh, rather thick uh, Swiss accent. And I was the one person who was also there early in the morning. And my office, Fritz Wicke had offended everybody, and uh, <laughs> they put him in the most deep part of the building. But I was a beginning graduate student, and I was also in the second sub-basement of the building. And so occasionally I would encounter him at, let's say, seven in the morning. And, you know, at first I felt a little uneasy. I didn't really who was the scary guy. You, you didn't know about his reputation? Not really, but then he was quite nice to me. Uh, he, but he would say kind of uh, cryptic things like, well, first of all, his general counsel was always get here before the Americans. And, and I said, I don't think I can do that. <laughs> uh, the other thing he told me about um, trying to use the 200-inch telescope, not at the resolution you get looking up through the atmosphere, but at the diffraction limit, which is much, much finer uh, detail. And, I, uh, and he said, how would you do that? And I said, well, I didn't think you could do it unless you could kind of measure the atmosphere. He said, no, 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 no. He said, you fly a jet over and the, the uh, shock wave goes over. And, and, you know, you fly a supersonic jet over the telescope. Oh, yeah, we're not going to do that. <laughs> uh, and that this uh, sharp edge going across would uh, give you information. I mean, he had a lot of sort of conundrums and riddles and... Uh, Koans. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So it was, um, I mean, he was actually quite kind to me, but uh, it was scary. And then when I was actually working in the field of supernovae, I, began, I thought, gee, should I tell him or not tell him? And so anyway, uh, he, of course, really got the field going in the 1920s. 
when people realized that the nebulae were really galaxies, that they were not part of the Milky Way, but they were much farther away. And people had known that these nebulae sometimes had stars that erupted in them, novae. But once Hubble had shown that the distances were large, that meant that the luminosity of these things was very, very large. Uh, And it was Fritz Zwicky who realized that and called them supernovae because they Mm. could not be the same as Mm. the novae that were seen in Mm. the Milky Way. So he invented the name. He built the first Schmidt telescope, which has a very wide field, so you can look at lots of galaxies at once, as a search tool for finding supernovae, which turned out to be a very good one. And, you know, supernovae have been found once a year or maybe once every two years until he got going. And then he found several every year, which gave people something to study and something to really uh, begin to understand these two kinds that we were talking about. Um, it was around the 1980s, wasn't it, that people started getting seriously interested in doing surveys for, for supernovae? Well, Fritz Wicke had organized uh, people to search with uh, small telescopes. Then at Palomar, the 48-inch telescope, which had a big field, six degrees across, was used regularly to search for supernovae. And I had a summer job where for one month when the guy who usually did this was on vacation, I did the supernova search and I found a couple of supernovae. So that was going on in the 60s and on into the 70s. But it was Supernova 1987A that really kind of kicked off a a bigger interest in supernovae. And why was that? Well, I had studied Supernova 1972E, and that was the brightest one since 1937. But this one was much, much brighter. It was in the Large Magellanic Cloud, which is a satellite of our own Milky Way. Of course, you have to be in southern latitudes to see it well. But anyway, there were observatories in Chile, and the supernova was discovered. Everybody worked on it using every kind of uh, telescope that was available. And I was very fortunate. I had written a proposal to use the International Ultraviolet Explorer Satellite, IUE, on supernovae. And uh, there were a couple where we got some data, But this uh, one in the Magellanic Cloud was bright enough to see with your own eye, and it was a tremendous, exciting event. And I had the program to do the ultraviolet observations, which were a good part of the story. But more important than its influence on me was the fact that it got lots of other people interested in supernova as a phenomena and uh, coming into the field from other areas of astronomy. And after that, uh, people were interested in supernova surveys and finding supernovae and then using them to measure uh, cosmic distances. Now, despite being incredibly bright, it's not always easy to find them, right? Or it wasn't historically. That's right. They're rare. See, the point is that they're rare. And so that means if you look at a galaxy, on average, it's about 100 years between supernova events. If you looked at 100 galaxies it would be a year between looking at supernova events. If you looked at a 1,000 galaxies, it would sort of be a month between finding supernova events. And that's sort of where the searches were uh, in the 70s, finding one a month or something. And how long do you have to witness an event? It's about a month. Okay. It's about a month. And you know, the moon goes around in about a month, a month. And so it's bright and dark at night, 
you know, there are a couple of weeks when the moon is near full, and so the sky is bright. It's hard to find faint things. So this pattern seemed like the obvious thing. You observe every month. You compare the images that you took last night with the one from last month or last year. And the technology for doing that in 1971, when I first found a supernova, was a blink comparator that presented to your eyepiece the image from one plate and from the other, flipping back and forth with a mirror doing that. The things that stayed the same were just stayed the same, but things that were on one plate but not the other would kind of blink on and uh, off. But it was up to you, a human oh, being, it's on your brain. to spot that. Yeah. Wow. So we had to get away from that Yeah. <laughs> in order to make this uh, really uh, go forward faster. And people began to realize that you could build an uh, electronic detector and use a computer to do the image Comparison. subtraction instead yeah. of the tedious human part of it. So the detectors got better and the searches got better. And people understood from back in the 70s that maybe you could use the supernovae to trace the history of cosmic expansion. The idea there is the light that you receive from a supernova comes to you from far away. It takes a long time to get here. But you can measure two things. You can measure how bright the supernova appears and you can also measure its redshift. So from Hubble's time, we've known that there is an expansion to the universe and that the way to see that is in the velocities of the galaxies or things in the galaxies, like supernovae in the galaxies. And you can measure that by taking the light and spreading it out into a spectrum and measuring where the features are. But they're the same features that you see in nearby objects or even in atoms in the laboratory but their wavelengths are stretched out to the red by cosmic expansion. They're stretched out as, say, stars or galaxies move away from us. Right. So something, a big absorption line mm -hmm. due to calcium in the ultraviolet, you might observe in the green. Well, how mm -hmm. did that happen? The answer is the object's moving away from you. So we've known that at least since Hubble's day. Now, why use supernova? We already had other kinds of stars we could look yeah, at. Yeah, well, there are a couple of things. One is the supernovae are really, really bright. They are a million times as bright as the Cepheid variables that Hubble used to measure the distances to nearby galaxies. So if you think about it, it turns out the apparent brightness goes down like the square of the distance. Mm -hmm. So if something's a million times as bright, you can see it a thousand times as far away. Hubble was measuring distances of a few million light years. A thousand times a million is a billion light years. So that means with supernovae, you could measure distances, and it turns out with pretty good precision, to objects that are one or two or even five or seven billion light years away. We think that the distance or the age to the Big Bang is about 14 billion years. So that says... You could see supernovae halfway back to the Big Bang. Yes, of course, if it's 7 billion light years away, that means you're looking back in time 7 billion years when you spot that Yeah, that's when that the light object. was emitted. Right. So you measure how fast the universe was expanding back then, you compare it to how fast the universe is expanding now, and you would trace out the history of cosmic expansion. We thought for sure we were going to see cosmic deceleration. Didn't we skip a, an important step, though, you guys had to establish, I mean, you guys collectively, all, of, all the people working on this problem, that a certain type of supernova 
uh, type 1A, right? Right. Was right. what you ca- like to call a standard candle. Right. So that, like those Cepheid variables that Hubble used, you knew something about how luminous they were. And by seeing how much less luminous at distance they are, you could measure their, their distance. That's away. right. That's right. So people had suspected this right from the beginning. Uh, in fact, uh, in the 1930s, Zwicky and Bada had discussed this, and people had talked about how you could measure the properties of cosmic expansion or use the supernovae as distance measuring tools. I mean, I want to explain this a little bit better. When I say standard candle, I mean there's an idea that this class of supernovae, no matter where they are, are all pretty much the same level of brightness, right? right? And so if you see one that's really dim, you know, oh, that must be really far away. Right. One that's really bright must be closer, and you can measure those distances by that decrease in luminosity. With distance, how do you figure out that a star— Well, here's what you want to know. —has the same luminosity. Exactly. Well, here's the idea. Uh, we know about Hubble's law, and we know that the redshift, or the velocity, is supposed to also be proportional to the distance. Right. So if you have objects that really are standard candles, they will lie right along this inverse square law. If you have objects that vary a lot, some of them at the same redshift will be bright, and some of them Ah. at the same redshift will be dim. So you can tell whether something is a good standard candle or not by how big the spread is in the brightnesses that you measure. Now, it turns out it's more complicated yeah, than that, but it's, that was the beginning. And people had suspected this about the Type 1a supernovae for a long time. It probably has something to do with the fact that these are exploding white dwarfs. They're a particular kind of dense star left over after the stellar evolution of a low-mass star. And there's an upper mass limit for white dwarfs. So they can't be 10 times more massive than uh, one another. And so probably the narrow range of the luminosity has something to do with that fact. That they're all pretty similar in size. and Yes, although, in fact, when you look into this a little more uh, carefully, it turns out that the brightest of them and the dimmest of them are separated by almost a factor of two in brightness. So in addition to this kind of simple-minded thing of assuming they're all the same, mm-hmm. we did something better and we learned how to use the light curve shape, the, how long it takes to go up and go down. turns out some of them are a little broader than others to improve the understanding of what the intrinsic brightness of the star was. So you're able to adjust for any variations? Well, you know, yes, uh, up to a point. To a point where you feel like you look at a supernova and you can say roughly how well, far away it is. So roughly. We measure really? 10%. Okay. Which is pretty good, good and yeah. better than most astronomical tools. And that's why once we had done this, once the whole field had developed this technique, it seemed like it would be plausible to try to measure the difference between one history of the universe and another because those differences are not very large, but if you and so you need a pretty good tool um, to be able to distinguish one story from another. So supernovae, uh, by virtue of being uh, visible far, far away, allowing you to look back far, far in time, and being sort of standardized, right, uh, give you away a kind of yardstick for measuring not only distances but measuring. Motion. Well, so you measure the redshift and the distance. Yeah. And so you have a whole sequence of these pairs of numbers that you can compare 
to your expectations. Now, let's talk, uh, this will involve a little bit of cosmological history, why you were expecting to find one thing that you did not find. Yes, well, (laughs) the story of cosmology and discovering the uh, expanding universe really starts with Einstein, who uh, invented general relativity before people understood that the universe was big compared to our Milky Way galaxy, and before people understood that there was cosmic expansion, he looked for a solution to his equations that was static, that didn't expand and didn't contract, because he thought the thing that mattered was the stars of the Milky Way, and they aren't expanding or contracting (laughs) in a systematic way. So he put in by hand an extra term into his equations, the so-called cosmological constant, that would kind of balance out the tendency of gravity to pull things together. There would be kind of a springy quality to space. And it made a nice solution that he was kind of pleased with. Now, now one thing I think may confuse people who've heard this story about the cosmological constant and Einstein sticking it in there as a fudge factor to adjust the equation just so things would neither expand nor contract. Mm -hmm. You'd have a permanent static universe. Um, Is that he wasn't compensating for the actual matter in the universe and its gravitational pull. He was actually trying to adjust the nature of space itself. Well, he, he, made, he made this nice uh, spherical kind of solution that uh-huh. he liked mathematically. It's true, this was not required by anything anybody knew about gravity or anything anybody knew about astronomy. Right. Uh, so it was uh, a little arbitrary in that way, but he did say that he did it because of the small velocities of the stars. Right. Okay. The point is... It wasn't the stars that are the tracers of cosmic expansion. It's not the stars of the Milky Way galaxy. It's the galaxies themselves, which are at much larger distances. The nearest galaxies are 10 times as far away as the size of the Milky Way. And we know lots of galaxies that are 100 or 1,000 or even a million times as far away as the size of the Milky Way. So it was that the astronomical picture... A hundred years ago, just exactly a hundred years ago, nineteen fifteen, yeah, was uh, fundamentally, you know, inadequate. Did not describe the universe. But astronomers had much better tools after World War One than they had before. The big telescopes started to be built. The hundred-inch telescope at Mount Wilson, Lick, of course, later had a big telescope, and people began to understand things uh, after World War One. So along comes Edwin Hubble in 1929? Yeah, well, it turns out he had the data in 1925. And one of the interesting questions I tried to think about was, how come? He knew about velocities and he knew about distances. He had measured the distances. And a fellow named Slipher at the Lowell Observatory had measured velocities for quite a few of these nebulae. And uh, what's curious is that Hubble didn't plot one against another the thing we call a Hubble diagram, until 1929. So I got interested in that. And if you read his book called The Realm of the Nebulae, which is later, 1936, he says the reason he didn't do it was personal inertia. (laughs) And I thought, well, there's a kind of physics-sounding psychology. Personal inertia. Well, he was mingling with movie stars and things at the time, wasn't he? Well, that maybe maybe later. But anyway, uh, I think what really uh, slowed him down was having to discuss general relativity. 
Ah. You know, if you were an astronomer at uh, the turn of the century, you did not study general relativity. If you were a graduate yeah. student when I was, you took general mm-hmm. relativity from mm-hmm. Kip Thorne. But that was not the practice when Hubble got his degree at the University of Chicago. So I think it was the unfamiliarity with uh, physics and the mathematical, you know, it was hard stuff that uh, really discouraged him. You, you didn't have to know general relativity in detail to say, whoa, those galaxies out there are moving away from us because of redshift and all that. Well, it's interesting. Uh, Slifer's measurements showed up in Eddington's book about general relativity, ah. but without an explanation. And part of it might have been that there are a couple galaxies that are moving toward us. M31, the Andromeda galaxy, is approaching us. Check your homeowner's insurance. It, it will merge with our... It will merge with, with us. Not right world. away. And, you know, it's not going to be as bad as all... Well... I've, I've read that the stars are so far apart that two galaxies can collide, and a lot of things will just sort of pass right by each yeah, other. Yeah, it's like two swarms of bees, you know. The bees <laughs> don't actually bump into each other. That's amazing. Yeah. There's a lot of space between the stars. Yeah. So uh, Hubble, uh, anyway, finally did this. It turns out other people had done it before him. But anyway, he had the good data, and uh, he and Hummison had uh, started using the Mount Wilson telescope to measure redshifts for more and more distant mm-hmm. objects. They very rapidly established this relation between velocity and distance that we think of as the fundamental thing that tells you you live in an expanding universe. So personal inertia held him back, but in 1929, the big announcement the universe is expanding. Well, he didn't think it was expanding. He thought there was a relation between velocity and distance, and here it is. He was very agnostic on the sort of bigger picture. Oh, okay. It's kind of funny because, you know, in a freshman course today, you would say, well, here's velocity and distance, and, you know, you can get that from an expanding universe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The reasons why he didn't believe that, I think, were more subtle that uh, he was uh, in conversation with Fritz Wicke. They used to meet every month at his house, at uh, Hubble's house. And uh, uh, Zwicky had more than one explanation for the redshifts, uh, you know, tired light and different things. Which So he said, uh, Zwicky, who had a strong imagination and a very forceful personality, I think might have made it harder for Hubble to believe this uh, simpler explanation. Hmm. Zwicky's footprints are everywhere. Yep. He was a very lively figure, and, you know, there weren't that many astrophysicists at Caltech in the 1930s. Well, the simplified version of the story is that Hubble, you know, at some point established that the universe is expanding at a constant rate. Talk about Nearby, yeah. Nearby, yeah. Uh, and, you know, he calculated this thing called the Hubble constant. Right. And Einstein, at that point, thought, Whoa, there goes my idea, right? Yeah, he he gave up on talking about the cosmological constant, which he had invented to make a static universe. He'd had doubts about it earlier. In 1923, he wrote a postcard to Weil, the mathematical physicist at uh, ETH, the sort of MIT of uh, Switzerland. And uh, in it, he said, you know, if there's not a quasi-static universe, then away with the cosmological Ah. constant. So he obviously felt ambivalent about it. But by the 1930s, you're right, what he said was, forget about it. And it became a kind of poison ivy. You know, you just didn't want to touch uh, the cosmological constant because Einstein had said it was a mistake and a bad idea. And why did I think of that anyway? And 
Uh, it was never satisfactory. You know, he had a lot of uh, bad feelings about it. And he and uh, De Sitter wrote a paper where they said, basically, don't talk about the cosmological constant anymore. We invented it to make a static universe. The universe is not static, so, you know, don't worry about it. So bye-bye cosmological constant. But you guys, and again, I mean this collectively, all of you folks looking at supernovae in the 19, late 1980s and the 90s, looking to uh, determine exactly how not static the universe is, right? Right. Yeah, we wanted to see the deceleration, the slowing down of the universe that gravity would produce. Your idea was that there was this expansion, but it was kind of like momentum, and it was being slowed by the stuff in the universe. It yes. was going to gradually pull things back together. Well, maybe. You know, maybe we wanted to find out but how much it, there was. But you thought it was momentum left over from the Big Bang, just sort of yeah, running out of steam? Yeah, you had an expanding universe from the beginning. Yeah. And then there's gravity. Of course, as the universe expands, the density goes down. So you could have a situation where the universe would expand forever. You could have an ex- a situation where the universe is slowing down and uh, will slow down more and more and more and more. Or you could have one that would turn around and have a contraction in the future. So that's what we were thinking. If you look at a textbook from the 70s or the 80s, you know that's what it says. And... Uh, we thought, now we have the tools to measure this. And so, you know, a number of groups worked on trying to measure cosmic deceleration mm-hmm. from this relation between velocity and distance for supernovae. If that had been the case, if the expectations had been correct, what would you have seen in those supernovae? Yeah, what you would see if the universe was slowing down is that the lights coming from the supernova to you, but the universe is slowing down while the light is in flight, and that means it will end up not having to travel quite as far, and the supernova will appear a little brighter. Uh So if the universe is slowing down, the supernovae should appear a little brighter than they otherwise would. Okay, so let's get into a little bit of history here uh, on on the actual findings. Is this still a matter of, of dispute and contention among various teams? There were two major teams working yes, on this stuff. That's correct. You were part of the High Z team. That is also correct, Your Honor. <laughs> uh, t- tell me what High Z stands for. It, well, that's the Z is the symbol we use for the redshift. So it's the algebraic symbol you'd use for redshift. So high redshift supernovae. Okay. So uh, you were part of this team, which was composed of you and fellow astronomers uh, from Harvard and also guys from Chile, right? That's right. And I mean, there were quite a few people involved. Yeah. And, right. and Chile, by the way, is part of the, the, the story because they have such great observatories. Yes, and there were people there who had worked hard on the preliminary work on the nearby supernovae, uh, which you need because you're measuring the difference between the nearby ones and the distant ones. Mm-hmm. Also, all this business about how to measure, tell which ones are bright and which ones are dim, uh, that uh, came out of this early work in, in Chile. Mark Phillips, for example, looked at the data and uh, got the idea that you could tell which ones were bright and which ones were dim by looking at the light curve shape. So there was a lot of uh, preliminary work that was done on the nearby supernovae. The distant ones, of course, the problem was to find them. Mm -hmm. And uh, in order to do that, you needed detectors, electronic detectors, which were right on the steep slope of Moore's Law, starting out with a few picture elements 
0.24 megapixels, I remember, was one that my advisor had. He was very <laughs> proud and happy of a 0.24 megapixel <laughs> camera. But, uh, you know, this uh, growth that we all know about happened very rapidly, not just for computer transistors on a chip or circuits on a chip, but for the light detectors mm -hmm. uh, on a, a, a substrate. It turns out the technology for fabricating those devices is the same. For they digital are, cameras. And, yeah, they are silicon yeah. detectors, or right. some of them are uh, silicon detectors, uh, and the little charge-coupled devices are made by exactly the kinds of techniques that people use to synthesize uh, computer chips. Wow. Uh so there was your team, uh, the Hi-Z team, and there was another team from uh, Lawrence Berkeley Labs. Right. They so called themselves the... Supernova Cosmology Project. So the SCP team led Which I by... believe might be Saul Perlmutter's initials. I don't know what oh. his middle initial is. Oh, and, and Saul Perlmutter is the, uh, the physicist at Berkeley who was the leader of that team. Now, what's kind of amazing, and I think a lot of people have remarked on it, is that you guys were working independently, but you were converging on the same result at roughly the same time in history? Uh, that's part of it, but we were in contact with each other. So, yeah. for example, uh, early observations that Saul had, <clears throat> where they discovered a supernova, they would then call up everybody and say, we've discovered a distant supernova, would you please observe it for me? And I did that for them. So it wasn't that uh, it was completely independent. I gave them some of their early data. Um, but we got the idea that we could do it better and that there were technical problems like how to deal with dust where we mm -hmm. had more knowledge and this understanding that there was a, a range of supernova luminosities, not just one supernova luminosity, which we had all been working on discovering in the 80s. Uh, so we thought we're in a better position to do this. Now, now one uh, depiction of this is that it was a little culture clash, that you were mostly astronomers. They were largely physicists. Uh, yes, that's that's true, but that's not an excuse. Even no, no, no. <laughs> no, but I was thinking, you know, one one picture of the, the, the rivalry and the competition that was going on at that time, and there was a fair amount of competition, uh, was that, whoa, these are physicists, we're astronomers. Is that... Yes, that's a good shorthand for it. Now... Of course, uh, after Saul got going, he recruited uh, what I would call you know, black belt astronomers to be part of the team, and I think that helped a lot. But some of the issues I think they kind of underestimated, like how important was it that there were different luminosities for the supernovae, what's the right method for correcting for dust, how do you build up the low redshift sample so that you use the same method of analysis on the low redshift sample as you use on the high redshift sample? All of those were things that we had been doing. And that put us in a very good position once we started to find the distant supernovae uh, to analyze the data in a way that was uh, very reliable, I think. And so we were able to use the data that we took where we measured the nearby ones and the distant ones in the same way. Uh, where we accounted for the difference in the brightness of the supernovae in a pretty good way, where we used the colors of the supernovae to figure out which ones had dust in front of them and were dimmed by dust and so on. We had all those tools uh, in our hands um, pretty early on. Neither team knew initially how big the prize would be, right? I mean, you guys no. thought you would, you, you both thought you would confirm 
longstanding assumptions in cosmology. Well, measure the amount of mass in the universe. That would be a pretty good thing. Yeah, uh, yeah. And explain and were, to our, our listeners how the work that you were doing could, could actually compute the mass well, of the universe. Well, right. The idea is if the density in the universe is uh, a, a certain value, then the expanding universe will slow down, slow down, slow down, but never quite turn around. Or if the density is a little higher than that, the universe will expand, 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 and then it will turn around and mm-hmm. there'll be a, a, a Ganab Gib, which is Big Bang backwards, uh, <laughs> at uh, some distant time in the future. Or it could be that there's very little mass and that the expansion will be almost constant from okay. here into the past. So by looking at these supernovae, getting a sense of the actual expansion, you could work your way backward to a computation of the entire mass of the universe. Yeah, the density. The density, excuse me. Yeah, the density. And that's is that what you guys call omega? Is that yeah, the, that's right. the magic number that's that you were right. looking for? So that was the big prize. But yes, that's what we thought we would measure. That's what you thought you would measure. At what point did it start to dawn on you that all your expectations were wrong? October 1997, when Adam Rees, who was had been my graduate student, was then a postdoc at Berkeley, called me up and he said, you know, I've analyzed our data and it looks like the mass in the universe is negative. I said, well, you must have done something wrong. (laughs) Um, So at first I just didn't believe it. I thought there had been some error. Then Brian Schmidt, who had also been my graduate student and was now in Australia, did a completely independent analysis and he got the same result. So at that point, we thought, oh, maybe we better take this seriously and you know, have a real discussion of what we were going to do, because the other guys, the Salts group, had published a paper in the summer of 1997 that showed that according to their analysis, the universe was slowing down, and it had this high density. They didn't have very many points, and you know the data were not that great. But anyway, that was the sense of it. And our measurements seem to be showing the opposite thing. So I thought, boy, this is not good. (laughs) Maybe we should wait until we have more data or we should really think about this some more. And anyway, we had to decide at what point we would uh, go forward. So by January of uh, 1998, we pretty much decided to go forward. We started to write the paper that said, you know, we think the universe is accelerating, not decelerating. Mm and um, we had um, uh, Bruno Leibengut, who had been my postdoc, was giving a talk at a meeting. And we told him, Bruno, you can't say anything on this. You have to say the same thing we said last month while we were getting this result ready. Uh, and, 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 and why shouldn't he say it? Because we weren't ready to publish the paper. Yeah. You know? Well, that's one thing I wanted to ask you. I mean, you guys, both teams knew that the other was chasing right. this result. Right. And, you know, let's face it, science is competitive. Uh, it's wonderful to be the first, you know. Much better. <laughs> and so you have these competing sort of impulses. One is to sit on the results and really get them right so you don't embarrass yourself, right? Yes. You could find yourself in the embarrassing position that those guys a couple of years ago who reported the uh, B-mode polarization uh, from the Big Bang, the um, BICEP2 experiment, or the faster-than-light neutrinos. Or the faster-than-light neutrinos, yes, uh, from uh, the Large Hadron Collider, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I talked about both of those on my radio show, and both of those early ideas had to be withdrawn. You didn't want, want to have egg on your face by announcing too soon, but you didn't want to wait too long and be scooped. Exactly. So, so what went on between you well, guys? Well, uh, you know, there were many different points of view. 
My own view was the very conservative one. And I said, you know, the punishment for being wrong should be as big as the reward for being right. This turns out not to be true. <laughs> anyway. Um, it's not like Jeopardy. You're not no, to... and other people said, well, you know, we, this is, if this is really right, it's such a big deal. We really should go forward. Um, so there was a lively internal discussion balancing these things, as you say. Uh, you, you want to get your result out. On the other hand, you don't want to be uh, mistaken and have to say next year, gee, uh, not exactly. And the two groups, I think, had different approaches to that. I think we were very confident that we knew how to correct for dust. Uh, we were very confident that we had done the photometric calibration exactly right. Well, pretty right. Uh, we were pretty sure that we were uh, uh, good territory to go forward. So we did. And uh, at uh, a meeting in Los Angeles, um, Alex Filipenko talked about our results and said, you know, we have evidence that we see cosmic acceleration. The other guys also, of course, had their data, and, but they didn't want to say at that point that this is evidence for cosmic acceleration. They wanted to be more careful. They wanted to analyze what they called the systematic effects, by which I think they meant mostly the dust. So anyway, this unleashed a very uh, rapid flood of media coverage, and uh, that wasn't really our intention at all. Alex took off for Aruba for some eclipse expedition. He's always going off to eclipse expeditions. And Adam Reese was the guy in Berkeley who was there, you know, when the truck from CNN arrived and asked, you know, tell us about this. And Adam was the one who was on uh, uh, the news hour uh, explaining this to uh, the PBS audience. The media did get the significance of it, though, apparently. They, yeah. That you guys, the two teams and separately, uh, you guys published first, but the two teams had both you know, been converging on this startling notion that instead of slowing down the universe— the universe is expanding at an accelerating rate. Yeah. Something was pushing it apart faster and faster and faster. And you can yes. see this in these super distant supernovae. Yes, that was the idea, and that's which a, was a kind big of mind-blowing idea. idea. Yeah, and people understood that that was really uh, important. Uh, but it's also true that a lot of our colleagues did not believe it, well, that the for good data reason. was uh, <laughs> kind of ratty. Yeah. And, uh, so what happened over the next couple of years was with the data got better. Uh -huh. And as the data got better, this conclusion became more certain. That's the difference between something that is a spurious result mm -hmm. and something that's real, is that as you get more data, a spurious result goes away, mm -hmm. and a real result gets stronger. So we... So there must have been a bit of a sigh of relief as that data accumulated from oh, your yes. team. Yeah? I think we were we were pretty confident, but uh, it was good to That's see nice. that. Yeah, it's good to see that when yeah. you had twice as much data, the yeah. signal was better. Yeah, and of course now the signal is very strong. There are, there are uh, measurements of other things like how galaxies are clustered and uh, the glow from the microwave background, all of which converge on a solution in which about two-thirds of the universe is in the form of this thing we call the dark energy, which is the, the stuff that makes the universe expand faster over time. Exactly. So that was my next question. You, you get this result that shows the universe is expanding at a faster and faster rate. How long until you start to conceptualize it as this thing we now call dark energy? And I know that term was coined by Michael Turner of That's University what he says. Chicago. It must be true. <laughs> There's always disputes over who said uh, No what. one's disputing it. I'm just saying. 
<laughs> well, we had him on the show. He was he seems like a really nice guy, yes. so we'll give him credit. No, no, he's, <laughs> Michael had uh, invented a lot of um, terms that uh, we use. He's a very creative person. <laughs> <laughs> but but how how long before um, scientists such as yourself started to again conceive of it as this thing that we call energy that's pushing the universe? Apart? Well, it's really pressure, and not you know, it's not exactly energy, and it's really tension. It's not. It's the right. opposite of pressure. It's a, you know, technically speaking, it's kind of a, a strange name. But it's a, nevertheless it's a springiness in the space itself. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so the idea is that empty space, the vacuum has properties that are not, it's not zero. It's mm-hmm. not as though there's nothing going mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. And of course, this is a very uh, common notion for particle physicists, that the vacuum is uh, particles and their antiparticles being right. created and destroyed all the right. time. Well, we should say that, you know, general relativity, Einstein, 1915, 100 years ago, exactly to this year, says space-time is this kind of mushy or rubbery thing. And so maybe it has some elasticity and some innate well, push or have, pull to it. Well, if you have this extra stuff in the universe, then Einstein's equations tell you how the history of the universe will unfold. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we see from the supernovae in the past tells us that there has been cosmic acceleration over the last five billion years. And if the thing that's doing it is the cosmological constant, which is not proven then we can predict what will happen in the future. And what will happen in the future is exponential growth in the size of the universe. So the bigger it gets, the faster it'll expand. That is a kind of a bleak future in which distant galaxies will become harder to see as they get redshifted uh, so much that we don't get their light. And the universe could become a dark, cold uh, place, kind of lonely. (laughs) Well, it'll still be... Galaxies will hang together because of gravity, right? It depends on the properties of the dark energy. If it's the cosmological constant, I think that's just about right. But if it's uh, uh, something that goes right. uh, more rapidly, yes. that is where... If, if the, the acceleration is accelerating. That's right. And that, that is not ruled out. <laughs> no, I know. I want to talk about the two alternative possibilities for dark energy in just a second. But if it is, you said, if it's the cosmological constant, we, we should probably explain that... One idea is that it is, in fact, a parameter that that applies to space-time just the way uh, Einstein originally conceived it, although it's a different number than he conceived of. But it says space-time has this pressure. That's why it expands over time, and that's a constant. Right. And it'll stay the same. So the rate of acceleration will stay the same. Galaxies will be pushed apart. We'll say bye-bye to all those galaxies except the Andromeda galaxy, which will merge with ours, right? right? And we'll just be left alone in the Milky Way. That's exactly what Einstein thought the universe was like in 1915. Yeah, just there was the a Milky static Way. universe yeah. in which the galaxy in which we were living was the universe. Yeah. So there is this kind of paradoxical thing that maybe our future universe will be something quite a lot like that. If, in fact, dark energy is the cosmological constant. But there is this other possibility that oh, you yes. mentioned. That it, it could be a time-varying thing. It could be speeding up or slowing down. The dark energy could be stronger in the past or weaker in the past, stronger in the future or weaker in the future. So you cannot, with our present knowledge, say with any great confidence what the future will hold. 
So we can observe the past because the light comes to us from distant objects. We can only predict the future, and even there, we don't have a way to observe it. What if we look back in the past, a little bit back, and then further back, and then further back, and we see the rate of acceleration changing? Yes, well, we do see that. We see that there was an onset of acceleration about 5 billion light years away, 5 billion years ago. And before that, the universe was slowing down. So measurements made with the Hubble Space Telescope, Adam Reese led this work, shows that the universe was decelerating before it was accelerating, that there's a tug of war that goes on between the dark matter and the dark energy to affect the cosmic expansion. And it depends on how much of each one there is, and it depends on what the properties of the dark energy are. Oh, wow. So just the fact that there was this change, this big kick 5 billion years ago, or this reversal 5 billion years ago, where it was slowing down and then suddenly it started speeding up? Yes. The technical name for that, of course, since the change in position is called velocity, a change in velocity is called acceleration, a change in acceleration is called the jerk. So this is what we call... (laughs) cosmic jerk. Okay. And there was a picture of Adam Reese in the New York Times with a headline over it says that something about cosmic jerk. And it was not referring to him. <laughs> it was for, referring to the universe. So the, the fact that there was this cosmic jerk does not mean that this is not a constant, that uh, dark energy No, is no, not... no. It, what, the thing that's not constant is the density of matter. As the universe expands, mm-hmm. the density of matter goes down. So the balance between gravity, which depends on the density of matter, and the expanding or you know springy property uh, the balance between those two shifts because one of them is decreasing and the other one constant got it got it so um by the way you mentioned dark matter we weren't going to cover this because it's just a whole other subject but we'll just quickly say that this is invisible matter that we now think makes up what percent of the universe oh about 25 percent. 25 percent of the mass our own visible matter all the stuff we see you me planet stars cosmic dust Makes up 4%, you said. Something like that. So we've got remaining about 71% That's is right. dark energy. That's right. So how are you guys going to figure out whether the rate of acceleration is constant, whether it might be changing over time, whether the future of the universe is just things receding away from us gradually, or whether it might be something really crazy like space itself ripping apart. Right. Uh, you know, that's possible, right? Yes. Well, here's the thing. Uh, the measurements we've got now are the measurements we've made since 1998, and they're pretty good. But we can do better. And a more precise measurement of the onset of cosmic expansion and a more extensive measurement over cosmic time, farther into the past a little bit, will help us pin down the properties of the dark energy to see whether it is exactly like the cosmological constant or whether it differs from it in some way. So that's the kind of measurements we're engaged in now with more precise mapping of the onset of cosmic acceleration. I'm using the Hubble Space Telescope and making infrared measurements of supernovae. It turns out that's a good thing to do. The supernovae are more similar to one another in the infrared. Dust is less of a problem in the uh, near-infrared. And so I think that's uh, nature telling us that's the best way to look. So uh, how long till you have the answer? It depends how good an answer you want. You know, we can make this measurement to 5% now. But if you insist that the answer has to be to 1%, that's going to take uh, another 10 or 20 years. Mm, That's not so long. And if it turns out that the 
measurement shows that the dark energy that we have is indistinguishable from the cosmological constant, then we won't know whether it really is the cosmological oh. constant or there's something that mimics it. So right. um, it's a slightly unsatisfactory situation, but I don't think we have any choice. I think we better make these measurements. If you discover three quarters of the universe uh, and it was only 20 years ago, you probably ought to put some effort into measuring what it really is. And if it is the cosmological constant, then it could be thought of just as an intrinsic property of space-time. Yeah. Yeah, it could be something you're just dealt. And, you know, one universe would have this and another universe would have a different value. That could be. Yeah, could just be one of those, you know, those fundamental constants of our particular universe. But if it is this changing thing, yeah, then what might it be? Some kind of field? Yeah, it would be some kind of a light scalar field, yeah. A field like the field that propelled early cosmic inflation, maybe? Well, yes, of course. That is very similar where you have an exponential uh, change. Yes, that's right. And, you know, these scalar fields, the Higgs field for the Higgs particle is one of those. So as a mathematical thing, these have a real uh, currency in modern physics. I think maybe that term scalar field might be a little unfamiliar to our radio audience yeah it just means there's some number associated with every point in space mm-hmm. sort of like a uh like if you have a weather map and it tells the temperature everywhere there's some pressure, number yeah. at each place uh only not just in two dimensions but three anyway yeah uh, that uh tells you how to think about the properties of the uh of the thing making the dark energy uh as opposed to what other kinds of fields well, there are many other kinds of fields, and there are other hypotheses about what the dark energy might be. But anyway, one of the uh, ways to think about a changing dark energy is this one. I would say there are many theoretical ideas. None of them seems particularly compelling. Uh, and um, it's kind of a weedy garden where it would be good to have uh, some more measurements to help us with this. You say none of them seem compelling. How come? Because there are so many of them. Ah, <laughs> and the people who uh, work in these fields don't say, oh, yes, your, your idea seems better than mine. Um, uh, quite different. Well, I don't know. Uh, you know, when Einstein invented general relativity, it wasn't easily accessible to very many people. But the people who did understand it saw that it really was a fantastic creation and a kind of complete uh, mathematical solution for the problem that he had set. I would say there's no uh, idea that has the kind of um, uh, theoretical excellence of uh, general relativity in the field of dark energy. But it's a little hard to say. The idea, when it, you know, the great idea, when it comes, you know, at first people will not understand it, and uh, then, uh, you know, maybe it, it would catch on and people would begin to accept it. After that, people would say, oh, no, I thought of it first. You know, there'll be a whole uh, sequence of events. But my sense of it is that that's really what's missing from this problem is a really good uh, theoretical grip on what the dark energy could be. That would tell us how good a measurement you'd need to make in order to distinguish one thing from another. So the field's very young. You shouldn't expect too much from us yet. But it seems like a tremendously interesting problem to work on, and I'm very happy to be working on it. Is it, is it the thing that consumes you most these days, intellectually? Well, uh, I think I know how to do one particular kind of measurement, the one using the supernovae. So 
I, I don't spend a lot of time slack-jawed at, in awe about the universe itself. You know, mostly you focus on the thing that you know how to do, that you can, where you, where you think you can contribute to uh, helping with the problem. Now, we could be looking for solutions, you know, for the uh, dark energy problem within the framework of general relativity, or it could be said that maybe general relativity is wrong in that's some right. way. That's right. It's a hundred-year-old theory. Maybe there's some place where it uh, doesn't really account for things. And uh, one way to find out is to measure some other property, not just the expansion history, but the way uh, matter has clustered over time. You know, the early universe was very smooth. The current universe has very high contrast where there are galaxies and places between the galaxies and big voids and great uh, walls of galaxies. And the measurement of that over time might really be the useful thing. Hmm. We said earlier there was some contention about, you know, who got there first between the two teams looking at supernovae and ultimately confirming that the universe is expanding at an accelerating rate. Uh, Your team, the Hi-Z team, and the Berkeley team, the SCP team. And there's been, you know, some dispute and some acrimony over the years Eventually, awards were doled out, three Nobel Prizes, two to members of the Hi-Z team, right? Mm-hmm. One to Saul Perlmutter mm-hmm. of they the SCP split the team. Prize. They kind of split it, and other prizes have been split. Are you comfortable now with the general perception that it was sort of like two horses ending up neck and neck? I don't know. I'm going to <laughs> pick up the Wolf Prize, which is a very good prize uh, at the end of the month. Uh, I would say there certainly was a lot of contribution from each side. And uh, I think Saul is somebody who is very determined and who pushed and pushed and pushed on the uh, going forward on this field. And uh, that really uh, stimulated other people to work on it. So everybody has made an important contribution. So just as Ali and Fraser pushed each other to... Greater and greater heights of... I don't know. It wasn't... I don't know. Uh, But it's important in science to have things verified, too, and to have independent groups that helped convince other people that uh, this was really a a real phenomenon. What do you think would be the most exciting thing that might happen in your field in the next 10, 15 years? Well, it would be if somebody had a really good idea of what the dark energy is that suddenly uh, told us how it was connected to other things and in physics. The sense of it is that gravity and quantum properties of gravity must have something to do with this. Um, and putting that all in the right framework uh, is something which you know hasn't been done thoroughly yet. So it might bring in uh, unification as well. Well, string theory is the one place where gravitation gets treated in the same way as the other forces. So that's a very promising uh, thought, but an, a, a sort of application of it or, or a real uh, working out of how it explains the thing we actually see uh, has been quite elusive. Well, Bob, uh, I'm glad you have not been elusive. I really enjoyed talking to you. Well, it's been a pleasure. Nice to talk to you, Robert. Robert Kirshner is the Klaus Professor of Science at Harvard University and the co-recipient of this year's Wolf Prize for Physics. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. We'll be back on these airways next week, and you can always listen online using your favorite podcast app. May I suggest iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher? There are many to choose from. Anyway, see you next week. <laughs>